Lord, I pray that the truth of your word may be abundantly clear through my explanations here, that all of us would be attentive to what you have revealed concerning your Son, that we may uplift him and honor him and glorify him, that we may see and savor Christ in the scriptures. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the testimony of my heart, may be acceptable in your sight, Lord, that only the truth may carry out. After this, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we have here the beginning of John's gospel. And for a bit of context, this is written by the Apostle John, one of Christ's original 12 apostles, maybe the youngest at the beginning, but one who we believe actually lived to be the longest, maybe the last living of the disciples. And so as the other disciples died, most of them through persecution and violent ends, John continues to live, even in the midst of his own imprisonment and exile. But John, we believe from the context, writes this gospel later in his life, that after Matthew and Mark and Luke have already been written, um, that John seeks to add his own eyewitness testimony to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That as he's lived a little longer, he's seen more false teaching rise up in Christ's church and seen the need to address it by writing and focusing on things that Jesus said in his own hearing, that to focus on things that weren't included in the other Gospels. And so he begins uh, with a very unique and very intentional beginning to his Gospel. He doesn't start with the birth narrative of Christ, but he starts in eternity past. And so he begins with these first three verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he begins his gospel, his testimony concerning the good news of Jesus Christ, with the phrase, in the beginning. Now that's that's one of those, those opening lines, those, those, uh, those memorable things that's meant to stick in your mind as you read this, and especially to his original audience. We can think of many opening lines that stick into our minds in popular culture. The, the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or life is like a box of chocolates, or uh, long ago in, in a land called Mordor, or whatever it might be. We have these, these phrases, these introductions that stick into our minds intentionally. They're meant to convey something and set the scene dramatically for the story that is about to unfold. And so... John begins his gospel by intentionally echoing the beginning of the Old Covenant Scriptures in Genesis. We talked about last week how we believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who created, sustains, and governs all things, visible and invisible. And so we, can, we know from, from Genesis 1-1, which begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so, to John's readers, who were, who were students, many of them at least, of the Old Testament, would have immediately recognized this line. They would have been able to complete it. He would say, in the beginning, and they would think, yeah, is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he takes it a different direction. That with this echo of Genesis, he says instead, in the beginning, the Word. It's meant to, to pique their interest, to draw their attention. In the beginning was God, but in the beginning was the Word. And so he explains, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He uses this word, which means word. I try not to use Greek or Hebrew to excess that can be that can be a little tiresome, but it's the word logos that you may have heard. It's it's a Greek word that can just mean a word or uh, the discipline or study of a certain thing. We talk about biology, which is the study of life, or theology, which is the study of God and the things of God. The logos of a thing, or more generally, the concept speaks of the logos is the wisdom of something the knowledge, the understanding of something, and even greater in the context, the, the divine wisdom, the wisdom of God himself. 
And so John uses this word, this logos, that you can see back in, in Proverbs, how, how wisdom is almost personified as a person. So John speaks, he speaks that this word, this wisdom, was in the beginning with God, and that this word was God. That there is a, a necessary sense in which that this word is the word of the Father, the word of God, distinct from God, and yet also equal to God in another sense. That there is a unity and a necessary distinction between the Father and the Word, God and the Word, the Father and the Son. And so this is something that would have, to an unbelieving Jewish mind, have, have shattered their perception and immediately caused all sorts of red flags because they believe only in one God. But what John proclaims is not multiple gods, not a greater God and a lesser God, but he proclaims that God was the Word. He is united in essential nature and being with God, and yet there is also a sense of distinction. This is one of the key passages from which we derive our doctrine of the Trinity, that from reading all of Scripture together, we see the testimony of unity, but also distinction within the one God that we profess. That we explain this as Father, Son, and Spirit, each of which who are God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. A mystery that's beyond our ultimate explanation and understanding, and yet the revealed truth of who God is. And some, all the way back in John's day, and all the way up to our day, would would twist these words to, to try and try and rationalize their way out of the mystery here, like various cults today and, and false believers who would say, well, the word isn't God, capital G, he's a God, little g. But that's not what the grammar allows. That's not how the Greek works. And even if you read how the word God is used in verse 18, it totally undermines everything that they're trying to argue there. But it is something that we must believe and confess by faith, not trying to work out the distinctives of the mystery of how God can be one and three, one being in three persons, but rather we accept the testimony of God's word, that we try and understand it as comprehensively, as cohesively as we can, but also accepting that God is so good and glorious that ultimately he is beyond our understanding. And so he continues that everything that was made was made through this word. That through the person of the Son, everything was made. You see how Father, Son, and Spirit work together in all that they do. That all of them have distinct roles in the working out of creation and redemption, but all of them also work together with a single will and intention. That all of them work inseparably. That though they have distinct roles in every action, they work together as one God, that the Father creates all things, sustains all things through the Son by the presence of the Spirit, that in the beginning God created through the Word and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. We read these passages together and even from the very beginning we see Father, Son, and Spirit making and sustaining all things. And so this further points to the fact that this Word is himself eternal and God. Because if everything that was made was made through the Word, then the Word is not made. If everything that came into existence, everything that was not at one point and then became at a certain time, is on this side of the line, and all of this stuff was made through the Word, then the Word is unmade and eternal which alone is God, the I Am, the self-existent one. So this word, though distinct from the Father, is still God. That all things, uh, Colossians 1, we read this earlier, Colossians 1, 16-17, all things by Him were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, 
thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all of things, and in him all things hold together. That Christ, in a proper sense, is the creator and sustainer of all things. Let's continue. As, as John continues, 4 and 5, In him, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in this world, who create, in this word, sorry, who creates and sustains all things is life. That all of us live and move and have our being, Paul will say in Acts, through him. That in him is life and light. That in him we have breath, that we have being, that we have our existence, and also that we see and understand. There is there's much to unpack about that, and Lord willing, someday we'll preach through John, and it'll be a whole glorious thing. We'll be able to explore this passage across many weeks, but to say sufficiently that in the Word was all of life and light, and then this light shines in the darkness that the Word reveals the truth, that the Word reveals reality and goodness and beauty. And the darkness has not overcome it. It has not understood it. It has not seized the truth of the light. Because those who are hardened in their sin are blind to the truth, that they would rather keep their eyes closed than seeing what the Word rightly reveals. And so he speaks also of John, who even as the light was coming into the world, John the Baptist, who was a messenger sent beforehand in order to prepare the way of the Word's arrival. Verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It introduces this other character who we know from the other Gospels as John the Baptist, someone who's related to Jesus, but who's also sent before him by uh, that special proclamation of an angel to come and to be a, a forerunner of the coming of the Messiah, to be the one who would make straight the pathways for the Lord, who would come to testify about the one who is coming. John isn't the light, but he comes as a witness, to bear witness about the light. In verses 9 through 10, the true light, which gives light to everything, was coming into the world. That's what John was preparing people for. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So, the Word was coming into the world, the true light, the one who has all of grace and all of truth within himself, the embodiment of grace and truth, was coming into the world that he himself created and sustained, but the world did not know him. That this word gives light to everyone. That the Son is the full and final revelation of God and his character to us. That he is God in flesh. That there is no greater amount to which we can know God than knowing God through Christ, the Son incarnate. And yet, even though the one who made the world was stepping into the world, the world that he made did not recognize him. That they were waiting for uh, a glorious king, a, a war-conquering Messiah, one to come in and, and cast out the Romans. They were, they were waiting for revolution. And instead they got a baby in a manger. But I won't step too much on Landon's toes. I'll leave more explanation for that for next week. 11 through 13. He came to his own people, and they didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. That Jesus, the Messiah, the promised anointed one, whom the prophets foretold, whom John prepared the way for, came and was rejected. He came to his own, to the Jews, the people that God had chosen as a covenant nation, who had given the prophets and the law and prepared the way through many steps and unfolding revelation 
for hundreds of years, generation upon generation, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. But he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. And so they reject him. But those who did receive him, the the Jews who did believe, like his disciples, minus Judas, like the dozens of witnesses who were there to see his ascension into heaven, like the, the hundreds who were gathered at Pentecost, praying and waiting for the outpouring of his spirit, to those Jews who did receive him, and to the many Gentiles, like all of us sitting here today, who have believed on him, who have received him, who have obeyed the call to repent and believe in Christ, to them, to us, he has given the right to be called the children of God. We spoke on this last week, how that all of us, by nature, because of our our natural union with Adam, have fallen from the grace in which we were created. That from the natural state of fellowship with God, at peace with Him and each other and ourselves and creation, with that being ruptured in our fall into sin, into a state of sin and misery, we are estranged from our Creator and from creation. That we, though we were made for a natural fellowship and union with God, that relationship is severed from the beginning. That as Paul will talk about in Romans, that all of us in Adam fell. That it's not just somebody else sinned and and we're kind of suffering the consequences, but that Adam, as our perfect covenant representative of humanity, in a sense, all of us sinned and fell with him. But God, but God in his grace and mercy sent a second Adam, a final Adam, And through him, a new humanity was born. Paul will speak as well in Galatians 4, 3 through 7. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent to you the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That though we were naturally estranged from our Father and in need of restoration and reconciliation, this is exactly what Christ has come to do. That while all before Christ, every foreshadowing every type, every first Adam, Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, all of those types of Christ who came before where each one of them had failed, Christ succeeds. Where Adam in Luke's gospel is called God's son, where Israel is called God's firstborn, though they transgressed and fell from their state of grace. In Christ, we have been included with an imperishable inheritance that can never be taken away. That in Christ, we are the adopted sons and daughters who can cry, Abba, Father, who can go to Him with natural rights and with the promise of an inheritance to come. And those who believe, we see here, are not the ones who were born of human will or natural power. Your first birth, your natural birth, gets you nowhere in the kingdom. What counts is to be born of God. That circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing, but what counts, Paul says in Galatians, is a new creation. What counts, brothers and sisters, is have you been born again? A sovereign, gracious birth of God, of the eternal electing grace which Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He begins his letter, Blessed be God, and f- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 
that God has caused us to be born again in Christ. And that those to whom he has given the down payment of the inheritance, he will never take back. That all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And this Jesus Christ, the Word, who became flesh, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The one who the one who was in eternity with God, who was in the beginning with God, who at the right hand of the Father from all eternity was worshipped and glorified by the angels, who possessed all immortality and right and glory in and of himself, steps into history. That the Word became flesh. That the Logos assumes a true and full human nature so that everything he assumes to himself, he might redeem. So that in uniting a human nature with a divine nature, he may accomplish the reconciliation of God and man. And so there is a great deal to explain about that as well, what it means that he is man and, hu- and, man and God, that he is truly human and yet truly divine, that he is one person in two unconfused, unmixed, and undivided natures. If you were here when we preached through Philippians in chapter 2, we had to, to do a lot of work explaining what it meant that Christ emptied himself of his external glory by taking to himself the, the, the humble, humiliating form of the serpent. That he became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was that he became a true human without ceasing to be truly God. And so he can truly be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, not a a human and divine hybrid, not a a Zeus-like demigod, but truly God and truly man. Two natures in one person forever. That this Logos dwelt with us. And even the language he uses here, again, referencing back to the Old Testament, that this is the word meaning tented or tabernacled, that the word took up flesh in a similar way that God was present with his people in the wilderness, the temple and the tabernacle, that as that place was was the special overlap of heaven and earth where God's presence was visibly manifest in the glory cloud, even more so the word has come to us has dwelt among us in the flesh. The Word became flesh and tempted among us. And so we call him Emmanuel, the the very presence of God among his people. And John says, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. And you might in your translation not see the word begotten, because that's an an older word, an older translation maybe, but I think that there is still a great depth of importance in there. I almost wish that they had continued using it because begotten communicates even more about the depth of Christ's relationship with the Father. That he's not just the only son of the Father, but that he's the only begotten son of the Father. That there is an eternal relationship between Father and Son that through the way that he in human language and condescension, explains himself to us, reveals himself to us in the language of father and son, but yet also with the limitations of human language. As soon as you think of a father and a son, you think one before the other and the son coming into time at a certain moment. So we speak of an eternal generation of the son. But again, so much to say and so little time to explore. The only begotten Son, the only begotten, the one and only, the one who alone by nature was the Son of God, the Son of the Father, who by right and by privilege, by his own being God, is the Son of the Father. He is the one who is full of grace and truth because he is the divine nature in whom is all grace and truth and wisdom 
that he is truth in the flesh, that he is love, that he is justice, that he is righteousness, because he is God. And that Christ, the full and final revelation of grace and truth, comes to us as the fulfillment that all of the the previous covenants were flawed, not because of God who gave them, but because of our own inability to fulfill the law's demands. And yet Christ, as the perfect God-man, comes with all grace and truth in establishing a new covenant for us and revealing to us the full revelation of God and his gospel. As it says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the very universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. That long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to Abraham and to Adam and to Moses and to Noah and to Elijah and Isaiah and to Ezekiel and all of the prophets, all who came before, and yet... In these last days, he has spoken the final word in the word. And of this, John cries out. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John continues to confess that this Jesus, though John was born first, that John's public ministry began first. Jesus is preeminent over John. He is before John. He is above John. He has preeminence above and beyond John because he was before John. That he existed not beginning in a moment of time at his conception, but from all of eternity. That existence and truth depends upon him that Christ is the eternal word of the Father. Then 16 through 18, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, the law through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. From his fullness, John speaks of. From the fullness of God, from the fullness of the divine being, as we read in Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in, in Colossians 2.9-10, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That he gives grace and truth. He pours out grace and truth from his own fullness of being, because he is the source of all grace and truth. And from him we have received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, grace after grace after grace, beyond our understanding and comprehension. That if we knew a fraction of the grace that God has shown to us, that as much as we understand through his word now and confessing Christ and in studying his word, that's only the smallest reflection of the amount of grace that he has shown to us that is deeper and wider and far beyond our comprehension. He says that the law came through Moses, that that the old covenant at Sinai was was a a representative of this, this law that was given to us. The law which was good in and of itself, but came to a people who were not good. It came to a people who did not have the strength to fulfill the demands of the law. The law is good, but the law cannot save. 1 Timothy 1, Paul talks about the law and how it is used properly or misused. He said that the law is good if one uses it properly. And then goes on to explain how the law convicts us of our sin, how it drives us to Christ, and 
how it guides us as believers. The law is good if used according to God's intention for the law, not as a means of us justifying ourselves, because we can read story after story through Scripture of how that failed. The law is a guide to us and can only be a good guide to us through the grace and truth that come through Jesus Christ. And he says in 18 that no one has ever seen God. And this goes back to our, our note about verse 1, that some cults will say, well, you know, God in verse 1, the last one, the word was God, it doesn't have a definite article, it doesn't have a the, and so it's just a lesser God or a lesser being. And yet John uses the same word without the article here in 18. No one has ever seen God. So if their argument holds, then no one has ever seen God, but Jesus is God, but we've seen Jesus, it doesn't work. Again, testifying to the fact that Jesus is the only begotten God from the side of the Father. That he is the God. That he is Yahweh made flesh. That he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. And that he from the right hand of the Father has come to make God known to us, that he is the revelation of who God is, of grace and truth. He is the revelation of the good news, that all who believe in him may be saved. And so this is what we confess, and this is why we confess that I believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ is to believe as well in the Father. To believe in Father, Son, and Spirit. You can't have one without the other. You can't believe in God, the true God, without believing in the Son. You cannot separate them. John 14, 8-9, Philip asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. But Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That to reject Jesus and yet still claim to believe in God, as many of the religions and of our worlds profess, is an impossibility. You can only know God through Christ, God in the flesh. That no one comes to the Father except by Him. And no one comes to believe in Christ except by the witness of the Holy Spirit convicting us of the truth of His Word. No one comes to believe in Jesus Christ by looking in the clouds and seeing hidden messages, or by just looking within themselves deep enough, as the New Age religions would have you believe. No one finds God by looking at themselves, but rather we find God through searching the Scriptures and believing the holy inspired testimony of Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ is to believe in his word. And you cannot separate the two either. Because scripture, the holy inspired word of the, whole, of the Old and New Testaments, 66 books, and not any more than 66 books, is the inspired apostolic testimony of Jesus Christ. That Matthew 10.40, Jesus tells his disciples when he sends them out as his apostles, which is a word that means authoritative representative, he says that whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That as well with the progressive Christianity that identifies itself as followers of Jesus and yet picks and chooses what parts of the scripture to believe, they reject Paul and Peter and portions which I disagree with from the scripture, and yet still claim to follow Christ. But Christ says, whoever receives them receives him. Whoever receives him receives the Father. So anyone who would pick and choose with parts of scripture to believe and obey and not to believe or obey, do not receive Christ, whatever their claims may be. So we believe in this Christ of the scriptures. We believe in him, this Jesus Christ, which a name which has become so commonplace we may have missed the significance of it. The name Jesus is a Greek name. It's 
it's equivalent to the Hebrew name of Joshua. Uh, Dr. Cornelis Venema, he's the, he was the president of Mid-America Reform Seminary, where Landon and I were at for a year. We had classes with Dr. Venema, a brilliant man. He wrote a good little book on the Apostles' Creed, which I highly recommend if you're looking for, for another further study. But he had just a great line in explaining this name Jesus, that names tell a story that most of our names don't have a ton of meaning associated to them. I'm named Luke because my dad really likes Star Wars. That's about as complex as it gets. But in the Greek mind and in the Hebrew mind, names tell a story that the significance of Jesus being named Jesus is that it is the Greek equivalent of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. That when the angel appeared to Mary and to Joseph, Matthew one twenty one, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And further testimony as well that Jesus is the true God because if Jesus means Yahweh saves and he says he will save, Jesus, again, is Yahweh. We call him Jesus the Christ. It's been popularly said that Jesus is his name and Christ is his title. His name isn't first name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is the Greek form for Messiah which means anointed one, one who is anointed and commissioned for a special task. It had a general usage in that context, but it has a particular usage in the scriptures to speak of the anointed one who was to come, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one specially appointed and anointed for God's work of deliverance. That in the Old Testament scriptures, we see the anointing of prophets and priests and kings those who were specially set apart and anointed with oil to accomplish their tasks. But we see as well that Jesus, in being called the Christ, the Messiah, is the one who was anointed as prophet and priest and as king to accomplish God's work of salvation for his people. That at his baptism in Matthew 3, the son goes into the water. He is immersed under the water, not sprinkled with the water comes out of the water, and the Father speaks from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Believe in him. And the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. Father, Son, and Spirit appearing to anoint Jesus specially, to give him a special and full measure of anointing by the Holy Spirit that he would be empowered to accomplish the task of his ministry set before him. The Heidelberg Catechism, which has a lot of helpful explanations on the Apostles' Creed, asks the question, why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? The answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel of God and the will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of the salvation he has purchased for us. For him to be Christ is to confess that he is the sent one of God, who has accomplished the mission set before him of our redemption. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the one that God had promised, the one that God has sent, and the one that the Father will one day send again. Even more so, we confess that he is the only Son of the Father, the only begotten Son, we could say, in more accurate language, I think. Begotten, again, is not a word that we typically use. It's an older English word. Uh, when we announced that my wife was pregnant, we didn't say, we are beginning a child. Or <laughs> when we announced Olivia's birth, we didn't say, look what we've begotten. We said, we had a baby, we're having a baby. But the language has important theological significance to, to testify of his special, unique relationship with the Father. 
and also of his relationship in being the same nature as the father, that just as Isaac was Abraham's only son, Jesus is the only son of the father. It is a special and unique relationship that speaks of a sameness of being and nature of which Jesus alone is. And so we explain this through uh, the concept of the eternal generation, the eternal begottenness of the Son, which again is the language of accommodation. It's, it's God speaking to us through analogies in the created world in a way that we can better understand who he is. But understanding that it's ultimately beyond us, these interpersonal relationships of the Trinity. We must with faith confess that Christ is begotten of the Father, but not a, a lesser being begotten in time, as we've already seen in abundance. And that more than even the only begotten Son of the Father, He is our Lord. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is the most fundamental and original confession that a Christian can make. It is the confession that we see in the New Testament, the confession that got the apostles whipped and beaten and imprisoned time and time again. It's the declaration that they stoned Stephen for. It's the declaration that Paul went around persecuting the church for. It's the reason that apostle after apostle went to their death, being whipped and impaled and flayed and boiled and all of these awful things. The reason that that countless millions of believers have died through the ages for the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar ultimately is not Lord. That Muhammad is not Lord. That the President of the United States is not Lord. That ultimate allegiance is due only to him. That doesn't make us anarchists. That doesn't negate our responsibility to the right governing authorities that God has instituted for public good. But it does say that our ultimate confession must always be that Jesus Christ is the promised ruler and deliverer. That he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is king by right as God, as the holy sovereign over all things. He is Lord. He is Lord by creation. He has made us. He has formed us. He has put in it, us in this world at this time for this reason. He has the right over us as a potter has the right over the clay. He is our Lord by redemption. Because though we had sold ourselves into slavery, He has redeemed us back to be a people for Himself. And thus we call Him Lord. Just as God in, the, in Exodus, brings the people of Israel out of Egypt in a land of bondage and brings them to Sinai. Before he gives them the Ten Commandments as a rule for their living, he says, I am the Lord who redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. That he had a right over them because he was the one to deliver them. That Jesus Christ has all right and rule and authority over us for all of these reasons and more. But that is something that should bring us comfort because like every, unlike every fallen and, fail, and failing and frail leader and ruler that we have in the human sphere, he is a perfect, good, holy, just, and righteous king whose mission never fails. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb the powers of darkness will wage war against Christ and his kingdom, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That the confession that Christ is Lord is an encouraging thing because it also means that he has control over us as his subjects and soldiers, and he will not lose any of us. We spoke again about Philippians 2, 19 through 11, which says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Abraham Kuyper was a, a politician in the early 20th century who's famous for the statement that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He alone has the right to rule over all things. He does rule over all things. And one day he will consummate his rule and reign by eliminating every adversary forever. And so we believe, we confess together that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, to be our Savior, Redeemer, and King to follow his leading, to submit to his correction, to follow his word, to submit to his spirit and the conviction of our sins that leads us into the right right way. We confess to believe in Father, Son, and Spirit, which is the basis of all things. The basis of all of our faith, the, the the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him, as the Baptist Confession says, is founded in this doctrine of the Trinity. That we are chosen by the Father, we are redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit, just as we were created by the Father through the Son and upheld by the Spirit. In creation and redemption, our salvation is Trinitarian. And so we must place our firm confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the sufficient Savior of all who come to Him by faith, who is able and willing to save all who come to Him. And that we should seek to know this Christ through the means of grace, through prayer, through fellowship, and through especially the study of the Scriptures that reveal Him to us. That we should seek the written inspired word to to tell us of the living word. That as Jesus himself was praying for his disciples in the upper room, this was something that that was monumental to me in growing in my understanding of the faith. That as Jesus in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, it's been called, he prays for his disciples and for all who would believe in them through their testimony, which includes all of us sitting here today. And he prays to the Father, keep them and sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. That the prayer of Jesus for us is that we would be sanctified by the word. And should we, see, we should seek him in it diligently. And even more so, that we should see God as our Father through our adoption by our union with Christ by faith. Zacharias Ursinus, he was one of the men who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism and wrote helpful explanations on that catechism as well. I found it very insightful in explaining these ideas. He said that Christ is the only begotten, the natural, the proper, and eternal Son of God. But we also are sons of God, sons of God adopted of the Father by grace for the sake of Christ. And so we as we begin a, a new year, if you haven't started a new plan or anything already, I would encourage you to seek Christ in the Scriptures, to commit to reading His Word daily, to commit to these disciplines, that we may have a greater knowledge and understanding of Christ and His will for us, of a greater clarity of the leading and conviction of the Spirit, and also for a greater comfort and dependence through our relationship with our Great Father. And that we should seek to submit to Christ and His Lordship. That we should let Christ rule and reign over every inch of our life. And as much as each of us fail in this, as much as each of us have areas in which we thrive and succeed in so many ways, we have each of us areas where we fall short, areas that we're afraid to confess, places where where the battle rages on and so often we feel defeated. Jesus, very poignantly in Luke 6, asks his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Ouch. He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house 
who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately and fell, and the ruin of that house was great. If we would seek to be people built on a firm foundation, let us build our foundation on the words and works of Christ. And then let us go and proclaim his lordship to all the earth. That we would call all men to repent and believe in Jesus Christ while the free offer of his forgiveness still stands. That now is the day of our salvation. That we should call to all that he is patient towards us, not wanting us to perish. He gives us countless opportunities to turn to him. And that while the door is still open, we must seek him and find him until the day of judgment. That, as Paul said in Acts 17, 30-31, the days of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. One day Christ will return to judge all men. We will either be found righteous in Christ, and we will receive our Lord as a triumphal procession, welcoming their King in his victory parade. Or will we be cast down in judgment? as his enemies defeated. This is the news we preach and proclaim. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for us who do believe, this is our greatest comfort, to believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Let us pray. O gracious God, I pray